Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. I am your host, Ryan Dunleavy, joined by my co-host, Rob Dunham. There he is. He's waving for all of you who are listening on the podcast and not watching on yes. video. I'm quite a good waver. Yes. <laughs> yes. You will have to watch on YouTube to see see the skills in action. I'm the avatar of waving. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Ah, we have another good show for you. Our last show of 2022. And wow. It's crazy. It's hard to believe. It, it was, also means I think we're we're soon upon us will be our uh, perhaps best movies of the year. Yeah, um, here around the corner, which is always exciting. Yeah, we've got some good content coming for you in the first uh, couple months of the new year, including as Rob suggested, our best of list. Um, it was kind of a weird year in movies, and kind of a normal year in movies. But we can get to that uh, in later podcasts when we break all that down. Ah, but we do have good content for you. In this episode, we will talk about the box office and give a little update on uh, the status of Avatar. We're going to get into two interesting discussion elements today. We're going to talk about the importance of a movie's intro and why you should watch a movie more than once. And, of course, our watch list. All right, Rob, let's get started with the box office. And this was the weekend of Christmas and Avatar, The Way of Water, to no surprise, uh, was once again number one. It did $63.3 million in its second week in the box office. And as of the end of the weekend, I'll give you updated stats on this in a moment. As of the end of the weekend, it had made $261 million. Coming in number two in its first week, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, $12.4 million. Uh, it had some more in there because it came out a little bit before uh, the weekend. So it's up to $18.5 million. Uh, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, came in third at $4.8 million. Babylon, which was heavily promoted, three point six million. That's interesting. And maybe people don't want to go watch three hour long dramas. I don't know. Yeah, and uh, we can get into that. Violent Night finished out the top five at three point five million. Yeah. Uh, what do you want to comment on first? So the fact that Violent Night made almost as much as Babylon, given how much it was promoted in the cast and everything. Violent Night in its fourth week in the box yeah. office. Speaks to the fact that, I, like I said, I don't think people necessarily want to go watch a three-hour-long drama movie in the theater. And especially if they already went and saw Avatar, I think they were probably like, I don't need to go spend another three hours in the movie theater. I, I absolutely know that's how I felt. I was... When we talked about this last week, I said I don't un- I don't know what to make of Babylon. the The trailers and the previews were sending off really mixed signals about how the movie was going to be and what it was going to be about. And so, if you're not a hundred percent sure, and then you look down and see a running time of over three hours, like nah, 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 I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't know who. I don't know who let this this happen. I mean, this seems like an epic failure 
considering uh, I know you were up against Avatar in week two, but you don't have that much competition. You have a huge cast of stars. Uh, yeah, this is an epic fail on, on my book. Yeah. And you're right. Like, everyone wants to see Avatar. They're like, yeah, I'm not up for another three-hour movie. I mean, you put this in at, like, two hours, two hours, ten minutes. You know, there's a decent chance I'd be interested in. Probably other people would say the same. Just to check it I'll out. Prob- I'll probably watch it when it comes out on uh, video, but I'm not going to watch it until then. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of in agreement with you there. My windows for watching movie are relatively small, and so I, I can't always get away for three hours. But... Yeah, that's what happened. So, uh, major hit there for Babylon. Um, what do you make? I'll give you. Let's let's give you the updated stats on Avatar, and then we'll discuss what Avatar is up to. Um, so the updated marks, and this was as of this afternoon. Uh, the updated marks for Avatar are three hundred and seventeen million domestically. 712.7 million internationally it has crossed the one billion dollar global total um which means it has surpassed jurassic world dominion as the second highest grossing movie of the year um it hit the one billion dollar mark three days faster than the original avatar did course the original avatar famously had a very very long run similar to the run top gun maverick went on this past year um what do you make of the results for avatar so yeah it's already over a billion dollars after 12 days and top gun maverick ended up at 1.488 billion if i recall correctly Mm -hmm. i think there's almost no doubt that this will surpass that um, at some point because it still hasn't opened everywhere internationally. It's making way more internationally than it is domestically. And the hold percentage from the first weekend to the second weekend, and now we're even seeing it in the third week, is very impressive. See, I'm, I'm going to disagree slightly on the hold percentage. Um, it came out the week before Christmas, and then had i mean you would guess that a decent amount of people didn't get a chance to see it in preparation for christmas and so i was expecting the drop off to be significantly less now i could be completely wrong on that if this was a normal weekend for a second weekend that's a pretty good drop off rate that's not bad at all i was thinking because it came out on the week before christmas and the week of christmas is usually a big hit for movies and as you can tell there was nothing really challenging it for competition I expected it to do better domestically this past weekend. Um, But the numbers are pretty solid domestically. I mean, 317 million at this point, uh, two and a half weeks um, in is not bad at all. Um, The question is where it goes from here. Uh, The first movie made so much money because it went on just a crazy long run. I don't really expect this one to have a similarly long run. However, this one is doing really, really well internationally. Yeah, and I expect that to continue. I think that for some reason, the desire to see this world more is a much bigger thing Mm -hmm. internationally. Um, 
I will say, and uh, someone mentioned this in a Reddit comment thread about this movie, and I, I think they made a good point. We didn't necessarily, uh, I guess you, you brushed against this a little bit when you said that in some ways the movie felt like watching a, a like nature documentary. Mm-hmm. Like whether you think the story is good or not, or there's enough emotional depth or whatever. Um, one thing that you can say James Cameron accomplished with this is he made a whole, he made a, a whole entire world. Mm-hmm. Like there, there is something to being transported into that world. Yeah. Because it, he has made it feel, um, believable like it's it's unified there is there's an ecosystem there um that people are interested in apparently still very interested in seeing the the fact that it's made so much money already yeah yeah there can be no doubt about the quality of the visuals the quality of the world creation the quality of the environments and and the way things look and feel um so, I mean, if if you that's the reason to go see the movie, um, I don't think it holds the the movie itself doesn't hold muster beyond that. I'm always looking for more beyond that. Um, but it's it's there's no doubt that it was it was extremely challenging and uh, well executed on a visual standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um the interesting thing about this is this was not a cheap movie. This was an incredibly expensive movie. And Cameron is on the record as saying this has to be um, over, this has to make over $2 billion for it to be profitable. Uh, That would put it in the range of it has to be the third or fourth highest grossing movie of all time in order to be profitable. Uh, that's quite a thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm he gonna, might get yeah. there with this movie and the next one combined, but I don't think he's getting there with just this movie. Yeah, I don't think he is. Like, he survived with a rudimentary, fairly routine storyline in the first one. Um, I don't know that you're going to get a ton of people going back to see this one a second and third time. I mean, if you remember, that that was the thing that really drove the film. Um the first Avatar movie is a lot of people went back and saw it again because they were so captivated by it, by the visuals. I mean, it was the best 3D movie that had ever been done to that point. And I I don't know that you're going to get a lot of repeat. So I think this is going to have a much faster drop off. Now, the question is, will the international um, audience make up for what it might not do domestically? Yeah, then again, people went and saw Titanic like five or six times. Yeah, so. I don't. I don't I, <laughs> James Cameron has a habit of making movies that I'm like, really? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean it, had, it had some good things to it. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, I, yeah, I don't... I just don't know what to say about it. I would prefer that movies I liked more did better. <laughs> um, but it's it's hard for me because I can hold 
I can hold two things in my mind at once that this is a this is a triumph of visual filmmaking and also that like the second part the story slash character development is not good in my opinion and I can hold those two things in my mind uh but I don't like it when one triumphs dramatically over the other mm. you know I would I would love to see the fact that it's uneven in that way somehow rendered in the box office but i get why people want to go see it it is visually spectacular yeah uh any other comments on the box office uh i as expected i think uh puss in boots was always going to be second mm-hmm. this week and i think it did fairly well it's probably um you know gonna have to do fairly well for a little while to be worth the money they spent on it but uh, i actually did see that and i will talk about that in our watch list at the end of the episode mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think it i think it did pretty well overall um yeah not really surprised by the numbers for the whitney houston movie um that's probably about right where i would have expected so yeah that's the box office and interestingly enough there is no movie of any consequence coming out this weekend Hmm. so the run-up that avatar is getting both before and after its release is uh pretty amazing at this time of year that you're not getting any competition i mean i thought babylon might have been but no not at all uh you're just not getting anything and it will be interesting yeah one thing that's pretty i can say pretty uh certain uh, high degree of certainty that Babylon will not make more money in the second week nope. than it did in the first. <laughs> Doesn't speak uh, super highly of its ability to stay in the box office for very long. No, and that's it's funny because just like sometimes you see something do incredibly well, and you're like, oh man, there must be something to it. I think the reverse is at play with a movie like Babylon. Something that's so hyped up and highly uh, publicized does this badly then everyone just kind of assumes it must be a terrible movie. And mm-hmm. so that's probably going to plummet its uh, standing even more. It'll be interesting to track that for next week. Okay. Well, that's your, uh, that's your option. So basically everything in the top five this week will still be in the theaters next week. So uh, if you did not have a chance to see Avatar um if you are apparently a glutton for punishment and want to go see babylon have at it um puss in boots if you got kids violent night if you're still into santa horror and have at it all right so we will move on to our discussion and uh, i thought we would get into um something that i really find interesting and that is the importance of the movie's introduction the first scenes you see in a movie, uh, the how long a movie's introduction is depends on the movie, of course, and you can always kind of divide it up at different places. But basically what you're talking about is the very opening of the movie, um, the first scene, the first sequence, um, the first thing that introduces you to the movie. So we're going to talk a little bit about those. Uh, we'll talk about why it matters, what it accomplishes. And what it looks like when it's well done. Uh, so, Rob, talk to us a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about importance of why a movie's introduction matters. 
So you've got to set the stage, obviously, for what's going to come in the rest of the movie. you got to hook the audience um, and give them a desire to be invested in the movie, either by providing something that was expected or some of the most effective intros might be something that was not expected um, that makes the audience wonder where exactly this is going. Um, I've always, I've, I've actually always found those kind of intros to be very fascinating when you go into a movie thinking you're going to see one thing and then the tone of the beginning of the movie is completely opposite Mm -hmm. to what you're expecting. And, you know, sometimes that can make for a very effective movie. Sometimes it doesn't pan out entirely. Um, one that I think of that comes right to mind is, uh, Thor Ragnarok or mm. Thor Love and Thunder, the, new, yes. the newest one that came out, because it was marketed as this like body com- comedic movie, like a lot of action. And the very first scene was this slow, mournful scene with Christian Bale's daughter dying. Yeah. And really, like, really what really am I watching right now? <laughs> yeah. I, t- I told you the guy I went with is like, wait, is this is this part of the movie? Like it was, it was that, it was that off that he did not even recognize that the movie he was watching had started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another one that was very similar, but in a, I think in a effective way, was the intro to Nope, which came out. Mm. Um, and the beginning scene of that movie was actually you find out part of a separate storyline to what's going on with them dealing with this alien force, and at first it was like where in the world is this coming from? Like, why is this happening? This is real people and a monkey and like a sitcom. Like, I don't understand what's happening, but then it all came back and tied together to like flesh out an even deeper story than you were expecting going in. Um, So I, that's what I like that about intros that sometimes they can be um, exactly what you're expecting and hype you up Mm -hmm. a little bit for what you're about to see, or they can be subversive and make you kind of question, what you're about to see yeah yeah for sure i think the the main thing that it, that matters is it does it sets your expectations it it introduces you to the tone and the feel of the movie if um it it sets you up for what's to come and i think one of the things that that does is it gives you an indication of where like it's it's a little bit like a roadmap. It tells you, here's where we're going. Here's what to expect. Um, it's kind of like an orientation, as it were. And when it's done well, it gives you a platform for what you're watching, how to process what's happening, and and what you're doing. Uh, this is also one of the things that I think has changed most in cinema in recent years. Um, take a look at any movie from just say the mid nineties and watch the difference in how the movie starts. Uh, movies in the, in the mid nineties had very, very slow introductions um, I can think well, right off the top of my head, I can think of, I, I remember being in a theater watching uh, Star Trek Generations. It was the first one of the next generation crew. The movie opens with like four minutes of credits rolling 
And the only thing you're watching on the screen is a champagne bottle going like over and over, mm. over in space. It's like three or four minutes. And the only thing on the screen is that and the actor credits. And then eventually the movie starts and the champagne bottle that you've been watching for four minutes crashes into the brand new Enterprise B and the movie is off. Or another thing you'll see in like 90s thrillers actions, you'll just see like a city a city shot and you'll just see a bunch of people walking around and the credits are rolling. Or you see people moving around. And, and the theory was, the theory was that People are not yet in the theater. They're not yet in their seats. They're still fumbling around with their popcorn. They're still doing all this. So don't put anything important in the first few minutes of the movie. And that has completely changed. I think it started with, uh, it started, I, I want to say late 90s, early 2000s, where they started putting like, like, boom, getcha scenes that don't really have a lot to do with the movie itself. Like if you miss them, it's not, you didn't miss any story plot, but it introduces you to the characters. You'll see like, like if it's a heist movie, you'll see like a smaller heist that doesn't really have anything to do with the real heist, but it like introduces you to the characters and what the movie is going to be. Uh, so they started doing that. And now it's full on. Like if you're not in your, your seat for a lot of these movies, you've missed something. Yeah, I like I like how the intros can establish um either like a tonality like you're talking about or like a character. Yeah. Um one one uh, movie that sprang to mind when you said that about the heist was uh, Ocean's 11 with George Clooney. Yeah. The opening scene where it's just him uh in the parole room in front of the parole board um mm -hmm. explaining that he thinks he's rehabilitated. Yes. So instantly you're like you're invested in that character. Like, who is this guy? Why is he there? What's he going to go do? Who's he going to go do it with? Um, I thought that was an incredibly effective opening. And that by no means is like super exciting or mm -hmm. a thrill. It was just focused on a specific character. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you were talking about the idea of sometimes it switches your tone, it switches your expectation of the movie. And I've talked about this a number of times. Um. But, uh, and it's it's the intro to um, the opening sequence to Ad Astra. Um, it lets it lets you let me know that I was watching a very different movie, both in scope and tonally than what I was expecting going in, and that does reset your expectations. You're like, oh, this is going to be different, and um, I. I remember that feeling and I remember, I remember thinking, okay, this is not what I was expecting. And then you reset mentally on that front. Yeah. Another really cool uh, movie. If you have not had a chance to see it, that was a very uh, um, compelling intro. It actually feeds back in the story later on is the movie inside man. Mm -hmm. uh, Clive Owen, Denzel Washington, the, the very beginning of that movie. Uh, it's very interesting. And then it's, it becomes even more interesting later on. Mm -hmm. in the movie when they yeah. revisit it um yeah. so i i like i like how they you can also like hint at something that's going to happen i think another this is going like down a little bit of a different yeah. avenue here but um some movies even do this through the credit sequence at the beginning and obviously when we're talking about that the preeminent 
user of this is the Bond series. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when most Bond movies, if you go back and watch the introductory credits, they tell little pieces of the story through all the visuals that are involved in it. So it looks really pretty and often ethereal and not really in place anywhere. But then after you see the story, you come back to it and you're like, oh, that was that. And that was that. And that was that. So I, I've always liked that about those credits, that they do a good job of teasing things that are going to show up and not giving them um, away directly. Yeah, and that's another kind of a historic carryover. Like, you don't see that very much in modern movies. That's definitely a carryover from the older uh, older cinema, which I, I like because it's different. It's become a signature of the Bond series. Um, another one I can think of that did something like that off the hat was um, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, the American version. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did. They did a very similar intro along those lines, um, and that is a really interesting thing. Um, another, another. Okay, let's let's go. With the, what what does it look like when it's done well? Uh, are you thinking of any? You've talked about a couple that have done well. Are there anything else that um, that you have in mind when it's done well? Well, I think the. Th- the main thing and I've already said this that when it's done well is it provides investment, makes yeah. you, you, it draws your attention. Um, obviously, you've paid movie money to be in the movie theater, so you want to be there already. But if they can do something to engage you right away, mm-hmm. um, it just heightens the experience in the theater. So I think when it's done well, you're asking questions about. Um, okay, what is this person doing? Where are they going? Um, where's the story going? I gotta, I gotta focus now. Like, gotta, <laughs> mm-hmm. gotta make sure I'm paying attention and, and not looking at my phone and and not thinking about anything else because I, I want to see what's gonna happen here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what it does is it provides when it's done well. It- it really does provide you with something interesting, something to grab a hold of, something to jumpstart the movie, as you were saying. Um, one in particular, and I'm, I'll talk about this a little bit more on the watch list, but I want to get to this. I want to get to this piece of it is uh, Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher begins with eight and a half minutes where there's no dialogue whatsoever. It's just the scene of a, if you, a minor spoiler, it's a scene where a guy shows up in a parking garage and then with a sniper rifle and shoots uh, six random people on the street. And that scene is incredible in terms of visual storytelling uh, because it pulls you in right away. And the way they do it, all of it is through visual storytelling, the way they cut it, the way they, they wrap the scenes, the way the, the characters show what's happening with their faces and you're forced to watch this and you're forced to deal with it because there's nothing to distract you. There's no, there's no dialogue. There's no entrance in that way at all. And so that's, that's quite a bold way to start out a movie is with eight and a half minutes of no dialogue. Like you have to know what you're doing to be able to carry that level of pace and keep your interested right off the bat, especially because this was not an established character in movie lore. I mean, obviously the books are famous, but um, to do that is, is really bold. And I think it pulled it off really, really well. 
Um, another one I was thinking about, which I just started rewatching again, and this is this is actually something I I was watching a YouTube video about along the lines of a different movie, and that is um, how to do the confusion well in an introduction, because there are multiple types of confusing. Uh, a lot of movies will attempt to throw you off guard or get you confused right away. And there's a good way to do that. And there's a less good way to do that. Um, and the, the video I was watching actually had to do with um, Tenant. It was, a, it was a guy who really liked Tenant, but, but had some critiques of it. And one of the things he says is that uh, when you're watching the opening of Tenant, you don't know what's happening. You It looks like you woke up in the middle of a story and you don't know what's happening. And there's, there's a little of chaos and confusion. You have all kinds of questions about who, what, when, where, how, why, like all, everything is very, very confusing. You are confused, but the main character is not. The main character appears to know what he's doing and how he's doing it. And that creates that can create a little bit of disconnect. And I don't think that's a terribly invalid point when it comes to the intro to Tenet. Now, you contrast that with the movie I started watching again this week, and that's everything everywhere all at once. Mm. The opening to that movie is incredibly chaotic. It's incredibly confusing. And you're wondering what is happening? What is going on with this this movie? It's all over the place. The thing they do with it, though, is the main character, Michelle Yeoh, is also incredibly confused. And so you feel like you are relating with her along in your confusion. She is representing your confusion on the screen. So you feel connected to the story. You don't feel like you're missing out on it, even though you don't understand it, because you're you're going along with the main character. So that is mm -hmm. that is a great way of bringing in that sort of thing in a manner that's really well done. Yeah, I, I, I recall that um, familiarity of feeling with the main character watching the beginning of that movie. Yeah, And I agree, I think that was done quite well. Yeah, I mean, and it sets you up perfectly. It sets you up a tone, it sets you up a feel. Like, instantly you're thrown into the chaos of this family. And that entire movie is about chaos. And, and so it really sets you up well. Anything else to say on movie intros? Uh, I just I like them. I like all parts of movies. <laughs> yeah, is, uh, I think I think we'll we'll lead into our next little discussion here. Yeah, yeah. And I will say they're fascinating and they're easy to study because they are literally the first part of the movie. So you just yeah. turn <laughs> on the movie, watch the intro. Put in another movie, watch the intro. You do that, like you're going to get a good education on the differences of intros. Unless you're watching Memento, in which case it's at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. You got to watch out for some of those. All right. So that's our first discussion. And let's move to our second one. And this is why you should watch a movie more than once. Um, this is brought to my attention not too long ago as um, I, I was talking with several people and it came up multiple times over a course of a couple of days of people like, oh, I never, I don't buy movies. I never watch them more than once. I never watch movies more than once. So therefore I don't really own movies. I don't really like watching movies again once I've already seen them. And I thought, I thought to myself, oh, we got to talk about this. 
because there's so much you're missing if you don't watch movies more than once. So let's talk about that. Let's get into that a little bit. Rob, why should people watch movies more than once? What 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 do you think? Because it's a good idea. But more specifically, um, there's so many. There, there's just almost, almost too many reasons for me to elucidate. Honestly, um, mm-hmm. I start out with I just like to see pretty things, mm-hmm. and some movies are just nice to look at. Um, there is a reason that directors of photography are paid the money they are paid. Um, I think about movies like Skyfall, for instance, mm-hmm. um, or um, I think about pretty much every Christopher Nolan movie. Interstellar jumps mm-hmm. out to my, like the front of the list for me when it comes to visuals and the movies that he's done. Yeah. And we talked earlier about how James Cameron has succeeded at this world building. I think that's a big thing. Like mm-hmm. um, when I was at the IMAX, uh, movie for avatar 2 they have an intro and it says it's basically like imax discover new worlds is basically the idea and that's one thing that's amazing about movies it can take us anywhere um and they're providing the visuals for you so books can take you anywhere too you gotta provide those visuals for yourself so there's something um nice about being a little more passive in that pursue i love to read still i will always love to read but i love seeing things too i love seeing things brought to life um another another thing i talk about let's let you uh talk some about this and some of your other thoughts um one thing that i appreciate most about rewatching movies is seeing the subtleties of performance by the actors because i don't think it's impo- I'll say it's not that I don't think I, it is impossible to catch everything the actors are doing in film they watch movie one time mm-hmm. and some of the truly great performances just little variations in their speech patterns their mannerisms their interactions with other characters all these things lead into making a performance stand out um, I know the movie has gotten a lot of ridicule from some people some people just don't like it but one movie that i think of when i think about this is forrest gump Hmm. because whether you like it or not like tom hanks is that character throughout that entire movie Mm -hmm. and he it's kind of stunning how he was able to achieve that and he's done that with a whole bunch of other characters another another one that comes to mind of his is the terminal Hmm. i think that because that's an entirely different character it's the same thing yeah he is that person Mm -hmm. um and when you rewatch a movie, you can see some more of the, the hard work that went into bringing those characters to life. And I, I always enjoy doing that, too, because I miss stuff. Um, I'm always seeing new stuff when I watch movies again. So those are just a couple of things for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, for me, there's a couple there's a couple main reasons. One is. And I am partial to this because of how I watch movies. But when you watch a movie a second time, you are not watching the same movie. You are not. Because you are not the same person who's watching that movie as you were the first time you watched it. You did not know what was going to happen, which meant your brain is processing different things as you watch a movie the first time. 
when you watch a movie the second time, your brain is not having to process what is going to happen next. It opens up and allows for space to you to process and be open to new inputs and new information that you were not open to before because you were focused on what's going to happen. How is this going to play out? The newness of it sucks you in. I am I am a person who likes to, when I first watch a movie, likes to experience the movie. Um, I obviously do think quite a lot about the movie, but how I operate on this is I like to experience a movie and just sit there and let it let it kind of hit me. And then I'll make slight little observations of, hmm, I felt this way at this point of the movie. Hmm, I felt this way. And I was putting mental markers in there as I'm watching the movie. But I want I want to get the sense of what the director and what the movie is trying to get me to think and feel and and do in those moments. And then what I do is I go back to that movie later. I go back to those specific markers I left in my brain. I'm like, okay, why did I think, why did I question this in this moment? Um, why was I particularly drawn to that? quote or that statement and then i'll analyze it and then i'll come up with my my feeling about the movie um but the first as i watch it through i'm trying to experience it now the second time i watch a movie that's when it gets really fun uh because that's when you get to open your mind up to things like actor performances or like how this scene is shot or you're you're thinking like, oh, I really like this scene. Let me let me let me. I can't wait till we get there because I'll take a closer look at it. And it really does. It really it adds so much to it, and you can see things that you weren't required to see. So yeah, I'm I'm a very emotional person. Uh, for those people who know me, they <laughs> know it's very true, and. Uh, one thing I like about rewatching movies, there are certain movies that, and I, for me, a movie is incredibly successful if it can make me feel a strong emotion every time I see the same scene, every time I watch the movie. And there are very few movies that meet that criteria because I think a lot of times, obviously, directors are trying to get you to feel emotion. Mm-hmm. So it has to be something within you that makes you connect. To something in a movie and there are two that stand out in my mind as i was thinking about this um the ending of the prestige always gives me chills every mm. single time i watch it and mm. i know exactly what's going to happen every time yeah. and every time i see the end i get i just get goosebumps all over my body like mm-hmm. it's so well done like just the story is so well crafted yes. that when it gets to that point it just makes you feel like ah like even if you've seen it a whole yeah. bunch of times yeah um so that's definitely one um Another one we already mentioned Interstellar, but um, the scenes with Matthew McConaughey's character and his daughter are mm. just emotionally devastating. Yeah, to me, it impact me the same way every time. Yeah, and uh, this is it's that's one of the scenes right there that I've heard a number of people refer to Christopher Nolan as a cold director, and I'm like you cannot watch that scene with Matthew McConaughey watching the video of his adult kids talking about why are you not here and not feel emotionally devastated. You know, you can't watch interstellar and see the scenes with 
Cobb and his wife and the devastation, especially when it's revealed what was going on and not feel an emotional resonance. Like the, the idea that he's a cold director is just not accurate whatsoever. I mean, I, I think conversely, there's also uh, this thing, and this is different for every single person, I think, that there are probably some movies that you see once and that's enough mm-hmm. because it's too close to your own personal experience for whatever reason. And I just actually watched one of those this last weekend that I'd never seen before. And um, John Green is one of my favorite authors. Mm. Um, and he wrote a book called The Fault in Our Stars. And I watched the movie. And having had a friend, very close friend of mine die of cancer, watching that, uh, if you don't know the story, there's two, um, two kids, like late high school, early college kids, who both have uh, terminal cancer watching that one time is enough yeah for me because it was it was too close to my own lived experience and i think that everyone probably has their own thing like that but the thing i love about movies and i mentioned interstellar and um other movies like that is that the thing that makes it powerful another one i'm, I'm just thinking about now is gladiator mm-hmm. um when he goes to see his family yeah i'm um, trying to go rescue them the thing that makes those things powerful is they're, they're not directly analogous to anything we're living through personally, mm-hmm. but the directors do such a good job of making you feel the emotion the character is feeling. They put you in the character's shoes. So to go back and relive that is worthwhile because it's not something that you personally dealt with as trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I do want to, you know, be cautious and respect you know there are there are people who are only going to be able to see certain movies once maybe probably not even finish a certain movie because something comes up that is just too much for them um yeah but that's one of the 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 breadth of movie making is something i love and and i i can't really fathom the concept of only seeing a movie one time that i like yeah like of course i'm going to want to see it again because i'm i want to remember things and I found, like, honestly, like, if I go, usually you're usually when you're rewatching a movie, there's usually a couple years between, at least, because there's just so much out there to watch. And when I rewatch movies, I'm like, oh, I totally forgot that. Or yeah. I'll tell you, one of my favorite things, and this happened the other day, I was watching Hot Fuzz. Hmm. I can tell you that I've watched Hot Fuzz, like, probably over 10 times. <laughs> But this was the first time I've watched Hot Fuzz and Martin Freeman stood out to me because I don't know if I realized it was Martin Freeman before <laughs> because I didn't have the interaction with him in the other movies that he's since been a part of. Yeah. And so I was just like, oh, I remember this annoying police guy. And I was like, wait a second. That's Martin Freeman. What? the? <laughs> and I, I find that happens to me with a bunch of movies, um, especially movies that are like early on in an actor's career because well, you... you just don't know are yet. Yeah, and you, you bring up a good point. I'm broadening it out a little bit. Is sometimes you watch a movie and you're not at the right stage of life to understand it yet. Hmm. Um, sometimes it's because you're not old enough to get it, and sometimes it's because where you're at mentally, emotionally, relationally, wherever the case may be, it doesn't hit you in that moment. Um, you watch it again later, you're at a different stage of life. You have different challenges, different problems, different things. The movie resonates to you differently. 
And that is not something you're ever going to realize um, without that repeated interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can think of, you know, a couple off the top of my head for just basic interactions is um, I watched Mrs. Doubtfire a lot as a, as a younger teenager. Um, seeing it as an adult, there are very different themes that stick out to you than when you're watching as a kid. As a kid, it's just some funny you know, a funny comedian dressing up as a woman doing all this stuff. Like there's different things that hit you when you watch it, when you're older and there's different things along those lines. Um, or Jim Carrey's, uh, how the Grinch stole Christmas. There are so many references to other movies and other things in there that are solely there for adults and people who are fans of cinema that you're just not picking up on when you're, when you're a kid watching that movie. Um, another, another reason for me that I think you have to watch a movie is because sometimes, um, your opinions, the first time you watch it are colored by who knows what, Mm -hmm. and, um, sometimes they're colored in a rosy sense and you like a movie in one instance and then you watch it again. And you're like, mm, you know what? That's not actually that good of a movie. I don't know why I liked it so much the first time. And then sometimes a movie that you just didn't like or that you just didn't get, you watch a second time, you see what they're doing, your opinion of it changes. Um, I'll give you an example. The first time I watched the movie The Tourist with Johnny Depp, I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was funny and witty. I watched it again when it came out. And I was like, oh, this really wasn't that good. <laughs> it really <laughs> wasn't that good. Like, like you get caught up in the moment when you watch a movie initially, but then once the emotional wave isn't there, there's no substance left underneath it. And sometimes that's what you find. Like you, you can catch up with the way it's like the sugar rush. It's like you get a sugar rush real quickly. Then you crash hard when, once reality sets in, um, and a movie on the opposite end, um, uh, was, um, oh, now I'm going to blank out on the title of it. Um, I'm going to have to look it up here. It's, um, oh, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Hmm. I got to tell you, I hated that movie when it first came out. Hated it. I thought it was stupid. I didn't like it. Um, I don't know what made me decide I needed to give this movie another chance, but I did. And the second time through, whatever, if if it was I was in a different mood, if it was whatever, um, I'm like, you know what? There might be something to this movie. And then the third time I watched, I'm like, okay, now I love it. (laughs) There's... It just some movies just take it takes you some time to get into the flow of it. Yeah, I don't know if it's my hyper emotionality or what, but I love that movie the first time I saw it. <laughs> yeah, and it's one I of my did. favorites. I just didn't. Yeah. And sometimes there are movies that you end up really, really liking, but you didn't catch it the first time. And then you go the whole way to movies like Tenet, which are specifically designed to be watched over and over again, because there's no chance you're getting everything on the first mm-hmm. pass. Uh, that reminds me of uh, my very first interaction with Christopher Nolan when I watched Memento mm. and immediately started the movie over and watched <laughs> it again. I watched it twice in a row. And I was like, hmm, I think I like this guy. Yeah. Uh, 
fan pay attention to his movies. <laughs> well, we could keep going on on this topic for a long time. I think there's so much to it, but I think we should wrap it up there. Uh, but yeah, may, pick a movie this week that you only watched once and watch it a second time. That's that's your mission as an audience this week. You didn't know you had homework for podcasts, but you do. Mm. All right, let's move on to our watch list. Movies we've watched over the last week. Rob, what'd you watch? So I I just re-downloaded an app to track my movie watching because I've been incredibly lax at documenting what I'm watching and I want to pay more attention to that over the next year. Um, but one thing that was very nice about the Christmas weekend was I had a lot of time to watch movies. And another nice part is that my in-laws like watching movies. Mm. So when we go to their house, we watch movies a lot. Um, so I actually watched three movies Christmas Day and another one uh, the day after Christmas. And uh, so a couple of movies and, and then I watched another one the last couple of nights. Um, what we saw, uh, my kids and I and kids, wife and I went to see Puss in Boots, The Last Wish on Christmas Eve. Um, because timing wise, it wasn't going to work out to go see it on Christmas Day, which has been the tradition. Um but I have to say, if you're a fan of animated movies, this is a must uh, watch. It actually has a real scary villain in it, which is unique to animated movies. Um, they employed some of the techniques that are re- used into the Spider-Verse with the different styles of animation. So like when the bad guy shows up, the frame rate drops and it's just it feels like a different kind of movie. Um the beginning of the movie in this case was like the super boisterous, like singing number with Antonio Banderas. And you're like, Oh, is this going to be super lame? And then the bad guy showed up and it completely changed the tone of the movie. And the movie is fantastic throughout. John Mulaney is great in it as Jack Horner. And there's a, there's a version of Jiminy cricket that has like Jimmy Stewart's voice, which is mm. hilarious. Like, I don't know who voiced the character. But he sounds just like Jimmy Stewart and it's hilarious. It's just like, oh no, there is no good new after all, is there? Like, <laughs> it's just fantastic. Um, so I watched that. I watched, uh, I watched the other one. I like to highlight another animated movie. Um, if you have Netflix, highly recommend that you check out Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Mm. It, I've, I, I saw this posted. It was, it was being discussed, in the, and again, a thread on Reddit where I, I live. Um, Someone commented, and I, I'm I'm leaning towards agreeing with them, and it almost sounds blasphemous that this is their favorite version of Pinocchio. Mm. It is incredibly emotional. It is, emo- it is complex. Um, it involves Pinocchio being involved in joining the Italian army under Mussolini. Mm. Like there, it's just it's a different style of Pinocchio story, but it's still accessible to kids like you might have to explain some of the things that are going on um in the context of world war ii to them so they don't go around like giving uh fascist salutes to people uh but i i just felt the story was really well done and the best story that i had seen in a pinocchio movie and i've heard that the disney one that just came out was not very good so if you're gonna choose one to watch watch the one on netflix um, I'm not biased at all because Guillermo del Toro is only like my third favorite director. 
but it was it was fantastically done. I also watched The Fault in Our Stars, like I said. Mm-hmm. I watched a movie called The Christmas Candle, which was in, an interesting period piece from like the 1700s in England. Um, and I watched Top Gun Maverick again, Ooh, which nice. I enjoyed. My in-laws had not seen yet, and they were like, oh, yeah, that was a really good movie. It's like, I know. <laughs> That's um, another and, reason we didn't even get to for why you should watch movies more than once. Yeah. Show them to other people. Yes. And uh, as I said, I watched Hot Fuzz again. And I love that movie. It's hilarious. And the fact that James Bond is one of the bad guys in it is also awesome. Timothy Dalton. Because yeah. um, he's just not in a whole lot of other stuff. So to see him as a main character in a movie like that is really cool. Very cool. Um, I have three that I'll highlight. Uh, one I watch is currently on HBO Max is The 13th Floor from 1999. And it came out the same year as The Matrix. And it has a very similar storyline. But of course, it completely got lost because The Matrix just completely blows it away because it's a better movie on almost every front. Um, but it's interesting because it's another one. There was a there was a trend and I wanted to do it for my 90s trend. Because I, I have the article I'm developing about trends in 90s action movies. But this one really crosses over from like the late 90s to the early 2000s. So I don't know if it fits neatly into my, you know, conceptual idea. But there's this theory, there's this theme of movies and along that time of your world is not real. Um, especially with the rise in the advent technologies, the whole idea of your world is not real. And so the 13th floor really plays into that concept. Um, it's about uh, a, a man and his partner who are developing a, you know, a cyber world that they can like jack into. And um, then the one is killed. So it's kind of a murder mystery. It's kind of a, a tech thing, but it examines that idea of of virtual reality and the idea that your world is not real. It plays with the it plays with the the idea that you know we are all in a computer simulation running on someone's desk somewhere. You know that whole that whole kind of uh, intellectual concept. Uh, so it's an interesting movie. I wouldn't say it's a great movie, and there's a reason why it kind of got immediately buried by the Matrix. Um, which obviously has similar concepts, but it's not bad. Um, the second thing I watched was While You Were Sleeping. Uh, my wife wanted to watch that, uh, and that's with Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman. And it's basically about a it's a 90s rom-com where uh, Sandra Bullock is a uh, subway attendant in Chicago, and she, like falls for this guy who comes through her terminal every every week even though uh she doesn't know him and she manages to save his life in an accident on the on the train and he's in the hospital and she pretends to be his fiance and then his family comes in and they're like oh he's got a fiance and in the meantime while he's uh in a coma she falls for his brother who's bill pullman um but the interesting thing i'll point out is um it's another one of those concepts where directing is important. There's there's two kind of back-to-back scenes where it shows the guy who's sleeping and it shows his answering machine. And it's in this like high-rise loft apartment, uh, super swanky. And that's the one brother. And then immediately it cuts to the other brother 
arriving at a Christmas party and it shows, it just shows like a tire rolling up and you can tell it's a tire for an old beat up truck. And then you just see feet get down and their work boots and blue jeans. So just in that scenes, the way it was edited and directed, you know a lot about the two characters without either one of the characters ever really being on screen. And that's that's just good directing. It tells you a lot about those characters just from the visuals. Um, and the last thing is uh, I watched Jack Reacher. Uh, I watched it because it's actually the 10th anniversary of the movie coming out. It came out in December 2012. Uh, along with that, I, I'm doing kind of like a personal thing. I, I may write it up. I may not. Um, there's a lot coming out. Uh, I stumbled upon... Um, a podcast called light the fire or light the fuse light the fuse that's what it's called it's actually like a mission impossible podcast mm. um it's really interesting but they were they were interviewing uh director chris mcquary who directed jack reacher but also has directed the last several mission impossible movies and uh they were interviewing him they did a three-part uh part three actually comes out tomorrow uh interview him about this movie and all the things that went involved in it so i got really into this then i rewatched jack reacher and then i'm rewatching it again with the commentary on and it's just i really did like this movie when it came out and it was really really well done uh i'm going to link to the podcast in case anyone's interested to check it out uh but there's so many elements and i talked about one with the intro of visual storytelling but there's another scene in there where reacher comes rolling up back to his hotel room and in the meantime, there's been someone murdered and placed right outside his hotel room to attempt to frame him. And this is another one of those scenes where nobody says anything, but the entire scene is, is done by looks. Like Reacher's in his car and you see him look at the cop cars and look over to where the body is. And you see it dawn on his face what happened. And then the cop comes out. And the cop looks, sees the car, sees Reacher. Reacher looks back, sees him, and it's all done through visual impressions. Recognizes him, makes the connection, makes the connection that he thinks he did it, and then peels out in his car, and then you start with a big car chase. But it's just so interesting how the entire thing is just told, told by looks from the actors. It's really cool. All right, Rob, you got anything else? I don't go watch movies. Go watch movies. All right. I, thank you for checking out the Film for Fans podcast. Visit filmforfans.com. Tell your friends. And until next time, enjoy the movies.